you know, I went to make a uh, an intro with the teeth meme. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a text meme. Yeah. I can hear it in my head. Yeah. I swore same. It was from some sketch television show or something, a sketch comedy show. Mm-hmm. But nope, it's just a tweet. Yep, that just says teeth a bunch. <laughs> so I don't know if that would translate to an I intro. I think it would translate pretty well. People just chanting teeth. Yeah. Welcome to episode. Welcome to episode. Welcome to, Welcome to your favorite podcast episode. <laughs> Welcome to another brand new episode of Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy. I'm here as always with my co-host Anthony. Not really a snack buyer, Maddox. I'm really not a snack buyer. I kind of wish I was a better snack buyer. Part of it is I'm usually grocery shopping by bicycle, so snacks just take up a lot of space. Do they? I think so. Okay. I'm a really good snack eater. Okay. And because of that, I have to be a diligent snack buyer to not buy that many snacks oh i thought you were gonna say to buy a lot of snacks so you no can keep it the problem balance. is i would just eat them all hmm. so yeah. you know yeah. gotta work on that snacks snacks everybody loves snacks not you really i'll snack on them if they're around <laughs> uh this is gonna be a fun little i don't know a little more casual episode we're just gonna talk about some updates to our cubes over the past I don't know. For me, it's like a year, basically. You know, like, I've been changing my cube a little bit, you know, every set that comes out or just, you know, otherwise, as I my evaluations and goals change. And never is it really, like, you know, worth a whole topic on an episode. And we get, like, tastes of it here and there with the set review episodes. But I thought it'd be good to check in because I have stuff to say about cards in my cube that are unrelated to recent sets that don't really make for an entire episode. But maybe we cobble this all together. My cube, your cubes, we'll just, you know have a conversation about uh, our changing evaluations of our cube environments. Yeah, I mean, the rate at which I have been changing my main cube has definitely been slowing down. Like, I remember when we when I first built it and we drafted it the first time, I think I probably changed 50 cards or something huge after the first draft. You're like, that's it, new cube. <laughs> new cube, basically. But now it's like, it's in a pretty good place. Like, there are some targeted areas that I'm trying to alter the gameplay a little bit here and there, or, you know, some card that's really, really perfect for it comes out in a new set and I'll change it. But it's definitely been tapering off how much I really want to change it, uh, which I think ultimately means that my cube curation effort is just going to be directed towards new projects, uh, but, you know, it's always just going to change a little bit over time. Plus, I made that cube update update jingle like a year and a half ago, and I figured that would be like a regular segment on the podcast, but mm-hmm. we don't really end up doing segments, and so I wanted an excuse to use that again. Cube update update, cube update update, cube update update, cube update update. We could do more segments if you want. It's hard. I feel like I feel like the way we plan our episodes does not naturally result in a segment-based show. Maybe because, it's we, a, because we don't plan on segments, and we just go off on tangents too much, and then don't talk about stuff that we plan to talk about. No, no. I mean, first of all, we don't actually do that that much, but also tangents are good. My ideal version of this podcast is we basically don't plan anything at all. We just sit down and talk about magic every week. Oh, that's but, great, because that's exactly what I did. Okay, great. Perfect. Um, do you want to go first? Should I go first? Where should we start talking about... Things we've changed our mind on, you know, the cards that have been over underperforming, just, you know, observations about our own cube lives. Go for it. Okay, great. I'll start off, and I want to talk mostly about the Bun Magic Cube today. I have a couple little degenerate micro cube things, but mostly Bun Magic Cube stuff. And first off, I just want to do a, a Bane Slayer check in. We did a whole episode where I was talking about trying to introduce more three mana and up threats that did not provide value in the face of removal with the goal of making that card type more viable in my environment and also making the removal better just so my environment played a little more in that space. And the elephant in the room is definitely a shoulder of the apocalypse, mm-hmm. I think for sure. The giant, giant centipede lady. Yeah. kind of like an elephant. That was like a, a little addendum at the very end of that episode where I was like, oh yeah, and also I'm going to add shoulder. That'll be the last slot. And I did it knowing that the card, if it sticks, kind of takes over a whole game and the game becomes entirely about it, knowing that it requires no building around, though it does benefit, I think, from specific card interactions. Like if you do have Treasure Cruise and stuff, the card is better, certainly. Uh, Sure. Treasure Cruise makes a lot of cards better. Though the baseline of it is excellent without any building around whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of the topic we've talked about in the past that Sam Black brought up, talking about uh, the design of low-powered cubes and how a lot of people include cards that sort of, when you look at the structure of the card, feels like it is a synergistic piece that interacts with something. The the thing that he brought up specifically was Fable of the Mirror Breaker, which a lot of people included in cubes as like an enchantment matters or token matters or attacking matters piece. 
but turns out the card is just a beating. Like the, the floor is so high, those synergies kind of don't really matter. And I feel like Shielder is in a similar place where, yeah, you can build around it, but the oh, yeah, synergies to be clear, kinda, it's not synergistic. I'm yeah. just saying that like it can interact with cards in your deck in it a novel way. It can interact with cards, that is true. I mean, some cards can't do that, right? Like I was talking on stream the other day about Mu Yen Ling, which is not a particularly good card, but also mm -hmm. has essentially zero interactivity with any card in my entire cube. It's like, it's a Planeswalker that protects itself a little bit and turns into an air elemental. It's such a like generic good stuff card that I think it's yeah. on the cutting block for me. Like I can't think of any card where it's like, oh, I have Mu, I'm going to draft this more highly, or vice versa. Yeah, and I think that's important to sort of keep that in mind about your own goals for this cube is you do want, you know, I think one of the things you really strive for is like maximizing the decision space during the draft as much as possible. You don't ever want to open up a pack and think like, yep, this is the pick order for these cards. You want it all to be about how do these cards interact with everything else that I've picked in my pool so far or might be picking down the line. So, yeah, I mean, those kinds of cards don't necessarily contribute to that goal. Yeah, and Shouldred also is very much in this space. I acknowledge right. that it is just a good card. I mean... We're also going to, I think we're going to cover a lot of space that we've been talking about a little bit on our stream. So if you've been watching the stream, this might be a little bit of rehashing for you, but we haven't talked about this stuff on the podcast, and I think it's good to have more a dedicated space for it. Which reminds me, I had two people this week, Anthony, two separate people say, oh, I had no idea that you were on YouTube and making videos, and they're actually good. So go check out our YouTube channel if you haven't. I promise they're good videos. It's actually good. It's actually good. I promise. And uh, yeah, people that you know are regular listeners to the podcast are like, I never even knew you had this. Yeah, I thought, I thought I'd talk about it too much, but I probably am overly conscious of that. Go check out our YouTube page if you haven't already. Anyway, we experienced this, I think, to the max when we were playing Jay's Cube, where we had a match where I had Shouldered in my deck, and I just played Shouldered in two games, and that was the only game actions I took that mattered whatsoever. In one game, it was kind of important that I cast a Toxic Deluge first, but actually after, because sure, I had yeah, five yeah. toughness, so I could go Shouldered in Toxic Deluge. But for the most part, those games were just entirely defined by your deck's inability to deal with Shouldered, and that's definitely something that is possible in the Bun Magic Cube, and it has been a very polarizing card. Games have definitely revolved around Shouldered in the way that I, I guess anticipated they would. It's funny because as much as this is not serving some of your cube goals, you know, magic is complicated and you have a lot of goals you're trying to sort of resolve all at once. And this idea of having Bane Slayers be meaningful so that removal matters is all present to and contributes to this. The other thing that feels like it is sort of uh, in opposition to your goals is you actually really hate the card Clothis. And to me, this feels really similar where it's just sort of this like, what I don't like about Clothis is the uninteractivity of it. You could exile it when somebody gets, what, seven devotion to green and red? Yeah, sure, I <laughs> guess. Like I said, uninteractive. I mean, this is just a creature. It dies to any of the removal that doesn't care about toughness, which admittedly is a decent bit of it. But uh, it, there's lots of removal spells in my queue before Shouldered. Also, you could force them to block with it and just, you know, also add a shock to it to kill it. Like, it is way more susceptible and interactive than something like Clothis is. And I do run more removal in my cube than a cube like Jay's, which, yeah. uh, which is where we saw this particularly, I would say, toxic play pattern. I, I should say, if it's not obvious, I do not want games to play out like those games we played in Jay's Cube. No slight of Jay or anything or his cube, but just to observe, that is the kind of gameplay I do not want Shouldered to lead to. And I've definitely heard from some, some players that like that is definitely a possibility or has happened once or twice with Shouldered. Now, some of that might just be the meta needing to readjust, right? Like, I think for a long time, my cube has not had anything resembling a Baneslayer in it at all. So players, I think, are kind of low on things like Heartless Act and whatever, these hard removal spells that are maybe a little overcosted compared to your Blood Chief's Thirst and your Fatal Pushes, but that can actually answer a Shouldered. You can actually push Shouldered, I guess, too, if something left the battlefield, because it does go up to four mana value. But True. I think people are a little low on those now that Shouldered is in the environment. But the counter to that is that if it's literally only one card that you need those hard removal spells for, then it's not actually worth changing your evaluations because the chance you play against that one card is so right, low. Right. But they're also good in other places. They're just maybe not as good as, you know, a lightning bolt. It's all complicated. All this to say that I think Shouldered is ridiculously powerful. And I have definitely seen some people say that, oh, I didn't think this card was any good. If you're playing a power-motivated cube and you just care about running the most powerful magic cards, or that is one of your major goals, you should definitely be playing this card, I think, in any size. The card is really, really messed up. I don't know where I'm going to land on it, but I did want to observe that it has been doing the thing. It has been a very potent Bane Slayer. I think the most potent of any of the Bane Slayers I added has been definitely making waves, and so that is something to observe, and I have my eye on it. What are the other Bane Slayers that you've added? We did a whole episode where I added, like, ten. 
Don't you remember that episode? Yeah, we talked through uh, a bunch of things you were considering and narrowed down the list, right? Yeah, I think we added six or eight or something there. We're going to cover more of them. So the next one that comes to mind for me is Ironcrag Pyromancer. This is the 04 for two and a red that when you draw your second card a turn, you can bolt anything. And this card, I think, has been good. It's been good for me when I've played it in my decks. Players have reported that it's been good for them. I definitely don't think it's a top tier card draw or spells matter payoff, but it's very good. It's like definitely very playable, I think, in this environment. And part of it is that three damage kills almost any threat in my environment, right? As someone pointed out on YouTube in a comment that it probably wouldn't be as good in an environment where you're playing things like Grave Titan and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. that's true. My cube does not curve up to like five and six drops. So that's it's not going to get outclassed in that way. Three damage is going to be relevant at any point in the game. And just like, you know, little interactions, I had a deck we played on stream where I combined it with Sensei's Divining Top, and that's just every turn you draw your card for turn and also a generic mana bolt, right? You draw two cards a turn, one of them is a generic mana for a bolt, and the other one is whatever card you were going to draw anyway. And that's ridiculously powerful, so it has really cool interactions with cards like that. It was one of the cards that, of the ones we talked about, people were lowest on, like the people I pulled on Twitter and asked our playgroup, were lowest on in terms of the expected power level, and I think it's dramatically overperform those expectations yeah i mean i think especially just like a three mana oh four looks really really bad uh and even if you call it like a three mana three four unblockable is kind of like kind of a weird card but that's really not what it is like it has the ability to go to face and just like actually end a game uh but it also just has a huge presence on any board and you can actually trigger it twice if you have ways to draw two cards on your opponent's turn as well so the the ceiling is really really high yeah so i think that card's cool that's sticking around for a while it's been one of the cards I've been most happy about from this batch of editions. A card that has performed exactly as anticipated, but I just want to remark on briefly, is Adeline Resplendent Cathar. Some people think this is just like exactly as good as Brimaz, and I'm here to tell you, and I can confirm, we suspected this, it is so much better than Brimaz. Like the cards, I don't even think of that comparable. So uh, Adeline's been performing really well, the card's great, and definitely matches the goals laid out. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it can make a token the turn it comes down, uh, it doesn't itself have to attack to keep making tokens. And actually just turns into a huge threat on its own. Yeah, the ceiling is way higher. Adds up to a lot that that Brimaz, yeah, kind of just does a single linear thing. I have been attacked by a 7 power Adeline. That has happened in my cube, so it's it's a really good card. One card that is underperformed, I think, pretty notably, is Torin's Fist of the Angels. I was skeptical about this one. I added it because I was interested and curious, and it's one of the only ones everyone has reported like, yeah, this card is just awful. It doesn't work. It doesn't do the thing it's supposed to do. And I, I actually, you know, thinking about it more... I think that card is kind of missing something. Obviously, context always matters, and it was probably fine and limited, but the card does feel like it needs another something-something to make it actually do what it purports to do on the card, right? Like, give it three toughness or, you know, something. As is, a 2-2 that spits out 1-1s that maybe can get bigger if you have profitable attacks with either of them, it's just not good enough. Fair. I'm putting it on my new cube list right now. Because it, uh, I think that Carbonus would be like totally fine in like the regular cube, for really? example. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know my my uh, Selesnia section in that cube is always looking for more cards. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're stacked up on those, but just to like, that's my way of like uh, explaining where I think the power level of that card actually sure. has landed. Okay. Is I think it's I think it plays like you would expect an uncommon build around to play in limited. In, in Interesting. Reality. I mean, it just does look so powerful in a context where you're just playing like a curve out Selesnia creature deck. I mean, does it like? Okay, so. How many tokens do you have to make before you're like, this is a bomb? I mean, because I you're obviously losing three. tempo, I was going to say two, but yeah, three is probably more likely. I think three is where you're like, this was a very good card in my deck. I think two, you're like maybe breaking even. You make one and it's like not that great for three mana. So the card is just not that great. And I kind of suspected that. I thought maybe it would have a fun ceiling because I do just love stuff that happens when you do other stuff, you know, triggers when you cast spells or draw cards. I think you're just part of the fun of magic. You get to build your own little engine and feel smart and cool, but the power level is not there for that card, at least for mine cube. So that one's going to be uh, shown the door shortly too, I think. Then there are two other Bane Slayers, quote unquote, that uh, I added actually well before we did our Bane Slayer edition episode that I also want to touch on that have also been performing pretty well for us. One is Sarah Paragon. That's the uh, the four mana three four flyer that once a turn you can play a permanent card or spell. I know you can play lands with it too. I'm not sure how it's worded. Out of your yard uh, with mana value three or less. Oh gosh, can you give me the rules text? You're looking at a computer. Anyway, it's got this like Luris esque ability on a three four flyer for four, which 
has the Baneslayer problem, right? Like, unless you play it on five mana, you're not likely to get value off it the turn it comes down, though you can play lands with it, right? Yeah, so it's a four mana, three, four flyer, and once during each of your turns, you may play a land from your graveyard or cast a permanent spell with mana value three or less from your graveyard. Okay, so I, I got it all there. So you can get, like, a fetch land back, at least, on turn four with this thing. So it gives you some value, even if it's not a whole lot. But it does, you know... Well, if it get... on turn four, if you've already played your fourth land in order to cast that it... That is true, not, yeah. So... Not if you've already played your fourth land for turn. So, that is true. So, yeah, the card does generally require that you untap with it. And I actually haven't played with it or against it myself in the... I don't know. When was DMU? Like, four months ago? Five months ago at this point? What is time? I, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I haven't played with it myself in the time it's been in my queue. But I've had multiple players report that, yeah, the card is, is really good if you uh, get to the late game and are just looking for resources. Which makes yeah. sense. Obviously, it makes sense to say that the card is good if you're, like, in the late game and have extra mana floating around. Like, the, yeah, the card's going to be good there. But the question is, like, does that circumstance reliably happen or happen enough in this cube that the card feels okay to cast? And the feedback from the playgroup has been, yes, definitely. I haven't heard anybody be like, this card is bad or whatever. I've just heard people say that, yeah, the card is good and cool. And I do like the play patterns. I like that you can buy stuff back. I like that it combines with the other spells you've cast in a novel way, right? Because it's, it's kind of like it has a once a turn triggered ability or something or activated ability you can pay for. It's just that what that actual ability is, is contingent on the cards in your graveyard, which means you can do cool novel stuff with it. The one thing I don't love about it is like the templating of it. The fact that you like when it would go somewhere else, it's instead exiled and you gain two life. I could do without the life gain and that sort of weird templating. If you could just like, you know, I don't know, make a token of it or something the same way you would with like eternalize. It's kind of strange, but the card is cool. It works. And uh, I'm going to keep that in for a while too. One last card that has really impressed me and I think perhaps suffers from a comparison bias is Scourge of the Skyclaves. So all the way back to Zendikar Rising, you know, two and a half years ago, whenever that was, this is the one in a black card that's templated like Death's Shadow, but instead its power and toughness is the difference between 20 and the highest life total amongst you and your opponent. It sounds complicated. If, you know, whoever has higher life total, its power is 20 minus that number. In my cube, with tons of shock lands and lots of fetch lands and lots of aggressive strategies, this card is very reliably an extremely good Tarmogoyf, right? It's a two-mana... I even had a game on stream where my opponent played, you know, a two-mana 6-7 Tarmogoyf, and I was like, here's a two-mana 8-8 Scourge of the Skyclaves. Now now we're playing two-mana giant creatures. What are you going to do about it? I did lose that game, but <laughs> it wasn't because of Scourge uh, not pulling its weight. So I think this card's really good. I... I Put it in there alongside Death Shadow. I do play Death Shadow right now. And Death Shadow is definitely not as good, I think, in this kind of environment. This deck card really demands that your deck be committed to lowering your own life total, I think, to be playable or to be very good. Because if you're, if you're in a control matchup and you just have a Death Shadow, it's entirely possible that you just don't get your life total below 13 with your own lands and stuff in my deck, and you just can't play your threat. Right. And that's pretty bad. This card, you can, you know, just lower your own life total a few points. You get to play it when you're at 16. It's still a two-mana 4-4. That's great. And then, obviously, the ceiling goes up from there. So, I think given that it's similar to Death Shadow, aesthetically, people will probably lump it together of like, oh, if you have a Death Shadow deck, you want both of these. But I think you can definitely just play Scourge of the Skyclaves in any black deck that wants two drop creatures, as long as your environment is kind of similar to mine in terms of being low-curving, taking some life from your mana base. The card's just good. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is going to play very differently in different environments. In your cube, there's just, like, even the slowest, earliest decks, their their life total is going to start dropping pretty quickly because of just the density of shock lands and, I don't know, just sort of the, the way that decks are structured and the tempo of things. And you have very little life gain, so there's, there's very little risk of this just, you know, suddenly dying to somebody gaining a bunch of life. I actually don't think I have what I would call very little life gain. It's there. There is definitely life gain in the environment. I think people always think I run like none of it because I am historically a little bit critical of life gain when I see it on a card. That's a If a card has life link or some sort of recurring life gain, it's oftentimes something I will avoid. But I've got cards that gain a fair amount of life. You're doing a search on Cube Cub right now, I can tell. How many cards is it? Do you want me to guess? Uh, yeah, do a guess. What's, what's the right way to search for this? Let me read a card. I think if you just search for O gain, O life, I don't think I have anything that triggers when your opponent gains life or something. You can pretty easily weed out the other ones. I would guess there's probably like two dozen cards that gain life in the cube of some sort. Yeah, I mean, there's something that's it's a little bit tricky to search for because lifelink isn't going to have those words. But I think it's I don't, I don't think there's like anything with lifelink in the cube. It's about a dozen. There is at least one. What has lifelink? Intrepid Adversary has lifelink. So does Loris, oh. actually. 
Right, Luris, obviously. Luris. Okay, so there's two cards with life. Like, that's true. So there's cards there that gain life. It's not that it's impossible, but it's maybe less prevalent than it would be in other environments that don't have a, a nod to that. So and, anyway. And Murderous Rider. You always forget about that. That's true. So and Legion's Landing. Four cards and with life. And Warden of the First Tree. <laughs> okay, that card. <laughs> That card says lifelink if you get to a million mana, which in which case you should win the game. So I'm not worried about that one. Anyway, all to say, Scourge of the Skyclaves. The card has been really good for me, and so uh, maybe worth reconsidering if you have a cube similar to mine, or maybe not. Just listen to me talk about how it works in my environment in a way that uh, I didn't entirely anticipate. It's been cool. Has anybody kicked it yet? Not to my knowledge. It's a total of like what eight mana Seven, to kick it. I think. Seven mana to kick it. It's a lot to kick it. I've never seen it happen. A couple other cards here that are unrelated to my recent Baneslayer pursuits. I added Embercleave sometime last year, somewhat skeptically. You know, it's very much, I think, the definition of a win more card, right? Embercleave, for those that don't know, is a six mana equipment. Let's see if I get all the rules text right. It's four red red for an equipment with flash, and it costs one less, one generic mana less to cast for each attacking creature you control. When it comes into play, you attach it to a creature you control, and it gives plus one, plus one, double strike, and trample. Uh, it also has equip three if you right. uh, miss out on that initial auto-equip, and it's legendary. Don't forget. Sure. So this card, if you have a, a wide board of a bunch of creatures, and it's only two, three, even four mana, it's a huge beating, and this card was really prevalent and standard when it was legal there. It's a very powerful card if you get to do the thing. Historically, I don't love these kinds of win more cards where if you are at parity or behind, the card kind of does nothing or is really overcosted for what it's supposed to do. And that's definitely kind of true of the card, right? It is definitely the kind of card that still does play a lot better if you're ahead. I'll say that I don't think at parity exists when this card is in play. It really changes what parity means when you can put this on one of your creatures. And something I've been pleasantly surprised by is that it can, more so than any other equipment in my entire cube, turn any dinky little token into a huge game-ending threat. Or, you know, huge is maybe not the right word, but into a, a real threat that can end the game in such a way that when it is in play, that three-mana equip feels actually pretty cheap, right? Like, if you've gotten to the point where it's in play, you get to start equipping it to stuff. I can kill your thing with it on it, and next turn you're just going to put something else onto the double strike and trample and it becomes a big problem. And I like that inevitability. I like that it does bring the game to a conclusion. It's also the closest thing I have to a combo with Stoneforge Mystic in my cube. I don't have Batter Skull, I don't have Cauldra, I don't have any of that stuff. And the fact that you can guaranteed put this into play for cheap with Stoneforge Mystic is really cool. I've seen players take advantage of that. What I really want to note is that this has made people really excited to play the kind of deck that wants Embercleave, more than any other card in my cube, I think. And I don't think it's anywhere near the best card for an aggressive red deck, but it is by far the one that pound for pound, the players in our playgroup are most excited about. They'll take it early and they'll say, I want to build a deck where Embercleave is good. And I think that's worth a lot. Yeah, I mean, historically, you really don't like combat tricks, though. How do you how do you rationalize that? Is it just like it just does enough to get over your distaste for combat tricks? Or... Again, my distaste for combat tricks is largely the floor being unplayable. Interesting. Okay. So I do have, you know, Rimrock Knight. I have Embercleave. I have other things I can't remember right now that do wandering emperor that do like combat trick related kind of stuff but importantly for me they always have a floor where it's not like oops i have no creatures so i guess the other half of my deck is useless i mean to be fair this is still useless if you have no creatures but i feel like that is yeah what is the difference because it's still <laughs> nothing if you have no creatures I, the difference is timing i think right timing. uh like the the blow up potential of a combat trick is way higher in the negative way, where like you go to put a combat trick on your creature, they just remove it, and now your whole spell is countered, it does nothing. The fact that this sticks around and still has all of that value, if you draw a creature later or whatever, I think is uh, is worth something. Sure, I, I guess I see that. And also the fact that it you know grants the power and toughness boost and the keyword abilities over many turns instead of just in that one moment, right? If we were to imagine a combat trick that just gives plus one, plus one, double strike, and trample, which is that almost exactly the text of... Uh, What's the combat trick that, in fact, used to play for a long... Teamer Battle Rage. I think it's basically what Teamer Battle Rage does. Pretty close to it. So, yeah, I've liked that card. It, I think it actually kind of fills a similar role to some of these other quote-unquote Bane Slayers we've been talking about in that it's pretty easy to blank this card and make it not that good, but the ceiling is really high, and it gets people excited, right? Like, people are excited to take that and just play it. And to me, that is really important. Like, I think having a card people get excited about to pull them into a deck is uh, is valuable. And I would say, other than Embercleave, there really isn't that in my cube right now for, like, an aggressive red deck. I don't know if that's true. I mean, you still have stuff like Sulfuric Vortex and things like that. 
that car has not been in my cube for really years and years and years. <laughs> the closest I have to it is uh, Eidolon of the Great Revel. People aren't excited to play Eidolon of the Great yeah. Revel. So, I I mean, the card is, I think, better than Embercleave in your aggressive red deck, but I don't see people being like, ooh, Eidolon, I'm going to slam this no. first pick and then go for it. People do that with Embercleave all the time. And this honestly could just be a, people will get tired of Embercleave and then they'll start ignoring it too, and then I just swap it out for the new hotness, right? Whatever people sure. get, gets people excited. Sticking with red for a second, Bedlam Reveler is a card that I added back to my cube last year at some point that has been, I think, also pretty fun. I was thinking today, Anthony, we are doing this roto draft of your cube. We just wrapped up the picks, actually. We're getting ready to play some games. And I took Rick's Manny Reveler very highly, which is a card I really like in the regular cube. I think Bedlam Reveler is just basically the Rick's Maddie Reveler for my environment. That's more appropriate for the Bud Magic Cube power level compared to Rick's Maddie Reveler. The ceiling is way higher, right? It's Two mana instead of four mana on the spectacle cost for Rick's Batty Reveler if you have a full graveyard. And then you get a 3-4 prowess instead of just a dinky 2-2. And you still get to draw three cards. And I've seen this card multiple times be a two mana, 3-4 prowess, mole drifter, draw three, which is nuts. It does have this cost, right, of if you play it alongside delve spells like Merktide Region and Treasure Cruise, you play it alongside Grim Lava Mancer, you play it alongside Dragon's Rage Channeler, cards that care about Delirium. Actually, that one's fine. That one's totally fine. That's a good combo. <laughs> but it has this weird interaction where if you time things in a weird way, where you you know delve your yard away and then you draw your Bedlam Reveler, it can be pretty bad. The floor is kind of low on this card, but I think it's been worth it for the ceiling, and uh, it is really fun when it works. And so I've been happy with that card. I was looking for more spells, mattery, payoffs, and I think this is one of the more fun ones. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of fun, and I like it personally just because it does require some investment. It's not just a card that you put in every deck, and it asks you to sort of play your hand in a different way and it is really fun to you know draw bedlam revel and be like oh i'm just gonna like use these burn spells in a way that otherwise might not be optimal but i know i have this backup plan that's gonna uh, just generate a lot more value in the long term right that's what i'm excited about so in, the, in our regular cube participatory draft i took bounce spells pretty highly more highly than i would have expected if you had asked me at the beginning of the draft how highly do you value a fading hope and uh into the royal because I think those cards are fantastic, just cheap spells that affect the board, even if it's temporary, when I want to get my hand empty so I can draw three more with Rick's Maddie Reveler and just keep going. So I'm excited about that. Reveler's been cool. I do want to give a brief shout out to Third Path Iconoclast too. I know when we talked about this, I think I was, I knew it was a card that like aligned with all my favorite play patterns. I think I even said it was pandering to me, and that was part of the reason I didn't like it necessarily. It felt like it was a card designed for me and my cube. The other thing I didn't love about it is that I wondered if it would just be a young Pyromancer 2 that happens to be in red-blue. And I can say pretty confidently that almost every time I've seen it in play, the ways in which it's different from young Pyromancer have really mattered. Namely that it triggers on non-creature spells and that it makes artifact-based tokens. It kind of honestly has made a whole new kind of little sub-theme of a deck that has come together a few times, which plays Iconoclast alongside a lot of the one-mana cantripping or otherwise artifacts I include, like your... Sensei's Divining Top or Chromatic Star or whatever. And then oftentimes also as Urza Saga. Those two cards have a really great interaction where sure, your, yeah. your cheap artifacts with Third Path Iconoclast are you're happy to have anyway, and they're also part of your Urza Saga package now. Honestly, it has me looking for like another little artifact payoff for my cube because of how that has kind of spawned a little bit of a variation of a deck all unto itself, where that deck doesn't even really want Young Pyromancer. I mean, it still has some spells. You maybe still play it in some cases, but a lot of times that deck is really optimizing Third Path Iconoclast in a way that Young Pyromancer wouldn't really be anywhere near as good. I'm thinking about maybe adding Emery. What are your Emery thoughts? I think Emery's super cool. I'm curious how it'll play out because I feel like it's one of those cards that when people talk about traps in the MTGO cube, they talk about Emery. It's like, this card looks super cool, not actually that good. So I yeah, wonder if you can MTGO actually... What does the MTGO cube have for it? I guess Lotus is what they want you to do with it, pretty mm, much. Yeah, that seems powerful. But... That's peak. Hey, guess what? The synergy doesn't matter here. The card is just powerful. No, the synergy does matter. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I think honestly with like one more... I've been thinking of adding Aether Spellbomb. I mean, it's on color with Emery. It is another card for the package with Urza Saga. It triggers Third Path Iconoclast. I think that card honestly can totally hang here. It's been a, a favorite in the regular cube. It's been a favorite in the Degenerate Micro cube. It might also belong here too. It's a really cool card. I think with that, I think I... Don't need anything else, maybe, to support Emery. I already have all the little artifacts that work with Luris, like the baubles and the things for the package for the Urza Saga. So I wonder if there's enough there that it's actually okay. It's definitely not the kind of card where you're going to be able to reliably 
turn two, cast a one-mana Emery, because your, your deck is not going to be that full of artifacts in my environment. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we also see more and more, just with the, the way they've been printing colored artifacts, there's often just incidental things that end up being Especially artifacts. Especially in white. I mean, I, I think I mentioned this on the set review episode, where we were talking about our own cube editions for Phyrexia all be one If you look at my white section, I've got, like, Esper Sentinel, Lion's Ash, I'm adding Glimmer Lens, I've got Dancing Sword, and... Portable hole could come up every once in a while. Portable hole. So there's a there's a lot of like incidental artifacts running around. We're like, yeah, could you build a cool tempo deck with it's mostly like white aggression with like a Urza Saga package and an Emery and some other like little payoffs in there? I hope that could be kind of cool. So in in the spirit of you know also just trying out cards like Torin's Fist of the Angels and whatnot. I think I'm going to give Emery a try and just see if it works. Because the card is really cool, I think, when it does actually do its thing. I mean, you know which one I really want to use it with is Baleful Strix. Yeah, I mean, that rules too. All right, last card from the Bun Magic Cube. I'm looking for an excuse to talk about somewhere, Anthony. And that is Dressdown. Dressdown has been so incredibly fun in this cube. I feel stupid for overlooking it initially. So for those that don't know, this is a one and a blue for an enchantment with Flash. You sacrifice it at the end of the turn. When it enters the battlefield, you draw a card, and it says, Creatures lose all abilities. I read this initially, and I was like, okay, this is clearly like a specific hate piece for some constructed something. I'm not even sure what it was maybe designed to stop. Maybe even just the Evoke Elementals. I have no idea sort of what context they thought this card was going to be played in. It's showed up in a decent amount of constructed because it does have a lot of weird edge cases where it answers stuff. I, for my own cube, looked at it and was like, that's a very complicated way to say draw a card, which is what I thought it would do. 99% 99% of the time, well, that's an exaggeration. I thought maybe 80% of the time it would just cycle and you wouldn't get any value off of it because I don't have a ton of activated abilities in my cube. It's mostly a cube where you like attack and block. And I was like, well, for a combat-based cube with attacking and blocking, this doesn't really do a whole lot, but it just does. It it's it always does something. The ceiling is very high on it and it's it's one of the most fun like little mini games I can remember playing in Magic in recent years is trying to figure out the best way to get value off of my dress down. Because every time you have it in your hand, there's like multiple different ways you can use it to get value off of it. You know, do you want to like try and stifle somebody's development by flashing it in on their upkeep when they have some mana dorks in place and now they can't cast what they thought they were going to be able to cast because their cards don't tap for mana anymore. I used it to shut off a mana dork and a auger of autumn against you on stream once. But that was just basically kind of a time walk like you had a whole plan for that turn and i was like well now you can't play cards up the top and also you can't use your mana dork and you're like pass <laughs> i have nothing i can do then yeah that really wrecked my day and then you know obviously it has the really high ceilings of stone coil serpent or something that you would cast it just has no abilities now it ends with no counters on it like it's a really cool card that has a really wide range of things it can do and playing with it has been really fun on top of that, the floor is fine, right? It is just two mana draw card. It really helps with Delirium. It's in a color that is happy to play instant speed effects because you're often holding up counter magic. So if you don't need to counter something, end of turn, you just play your dress down and then draw your card. You can also do the sort of thing where you play it during your end step because it gets sacrificed at the beginning of the next end step. So you can just play it on your opponent's end step. Then you untap and you just play Uro. And you don't get the trigger, but also it doesn't go to the graveyard because it's now you just got a three mana 6-6 six, six that the next turn will have its abilities back and you can start bashing with. Yeah, I was going to ask. We mentioned Death Shadow. Have you seen anybody just, uh, you know, attack with like a 3-3 three, three Death Shadow and then uh, dress down? I haven't, but these are all the cool things that it can do. And I'm going to have it in my cube for a long time. Long enough that I hope that happens because... It's just been a really cool and fun card. So put that on your bingo card. Put that on my bingo card. I want someone to kill somebody with uh, using dress. Down. See, you said I don't like combat tricks. Dress down is a beautiful <laughs> combat trick. It actually is. I mean, it kind of is. It yeah. actually is a combat trick, genuinely. You like know, somebody attacks with a flyer and you dress down and then you can get rid of flying, get ground. rid of first strike, you know, get rid Turns of Turns out creatures have a lot of abilities. Yeah. So I overlooked it because I just thought that I wasn't playing like a combo oriented cube where the abilities of my creatures were super relevant it was more about combat but a lot of those abilities care about combat and just finding a way to get value off of this card has been so fun so that's my little letter of uh approval to dress down have you got to cast this yet was it in your roto draft deck i feel like i did play it somewhere and i didn't manage to do anything cool with it maybe it was in your blue white control deck we played on stream or something that I don't, sounds I don't right remember. yeah i recommend it though it's very fun and cool So I mentioned that maybe my updates to the regular cube have been slowing down a little bit. I feel like, honestly, it's just in a pretty good place. Uh, Did it finish the cube? 
did it. The cube is over. I think it's just like it, it plays pretty well. I feel like I've achieved over the last, how long have I had this cube now? Many years. I uh, kind of many, achieved many the years. goals of creating this like limited type environment where there's lots of little overlapping synergies and it just plays pretty well. The biggest change that I have made recently is, like I've mentioned, we upped the cube size up to 450. And this was really just for logistical reasons. We have been running this local cube night every week and we always just have a different number of people so having a cube that can support 10 people gives us a little bit more flexibility uh, and you know those logistics I think are important like the context for what you're going to do with the cube matters a lot so because of that I did end up making a bigger update and kind of just threw in a bunch of stuff from my collection just kind of went through the box and found things that I thought could be interesting that's how we got a hackrobat in the cube exactly. which is kind of an exactly odd one that you're happened. like is I mean, this card good or fun or Hacro synergistic I, I do like hackrobat it's a card that I've always thought is pretty cool but yeah I'd, it's fine I'd, i mean i played it in a deck and it it okay great it's great a decent card it's just it's, it's funny because it doesn't strike me as like a regular cube style card and also doesn't really have any obvious synergies with anything it's just, it, it definitely strikes me as a card where you're like you're <laughs> looking through stacks of cards you're like well i have to add 20 more this one's fine <laughs> but i also took that opportunity just to add a little things that are a little bit more speculative uh so i did bring in bring to light uh this blue green card that tutors something and that's also not really a regular cube card in terms of the aesthetics of the cube there's no, not but a it's lot cool. of tutoring i like it but it is kind of cool um the other thing i've been thinking about is green has pretty much everyone in the playgroup agreed is kind of the worst color, which I don't put that much stock into. I don't think it's like a failure of the cube to have some card be color be the worst color. It's some color is going to be the worst color. Some color has got to be the worst color. And, you know, I think it's if people as are... As soon as you buff green, everyone's going to be saying blue is the worst color. Exactly. And <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for it. But something more concrete that I was I realized is looking through the gold section of the cube, there are plenty of gold cards. I like gold cards. But a lot of the green gold cards just weren't as clear signposts. They didn't have much of an identity or, you know, they just weren't as exciting to try and build around. Um, so that's thing specifically when I was going through my box of gold cards was... Is there something else we can do just to make these color pairs a little bit more appealing? So two of the, the cards that I've added that are have been really, really impactful are Fires of Yavamaya and Bloodbraid Elf. Yeah, baby. These, I, I think we've had a bunch of green, green red decks just crush the whole draft. And you're also feeling the coming storm of, of oh being about ready to get crushed by Justin Parnell's Roto Draft deck. So, so <laughs> I think I'm also going to get crushed. His deck looks, looks scary. But what I think is interesting is that I don't know that that people are winning just on the back of these two cards. Yes, they are powerful, and I mean, they you're not going to draw them every game. But right? you're not going to draw them every game. So it's like the cards that are relevant to making a good red green deck, which is probably you know a lightning strike and a saddled rhymestag. Saddled rhymestag. Those are already there. You could have combined those pieces, but there just wasn't necessarily an entry point that got people to to really think you know during the draft this is a reason for me to get into this red green deck so i think that's been an interesting sort of journey is thinking about are there entry points are there ways into getting into a certain color pair and while that's been really successful i think with red green maybe a little bit too much even and i might uh, reevaluate some of those cards at some point down the line some of the other color pairs that i kind of threw some things in haven't been as effective coiling oracle's cool but it's not really not really putting people that's in a direction a, that's not a like big power outlier shardless agent is a cool one that i added again with this batch i think that actually is very good it's cool but is it cool enough yeah i mean i think in this environment it's probably similar power level to Bloodbraid elf it's just a question of is that what you want to be doing in blue green and that's what i don't know is the answer yeah because like blue because red green does have an identity here if people were ignoring it which is just that it's a it's a beatdown color pair right and it has been for a long time in this cube so Bloodbraid Elf fits perfectly into that strategy. The question is, what does Blue Green want to be doing? And I still don't have a great answer to that in this environment, but I don't immediately feel like it involves Shardless Agent. Yeah, I mean, so th these are the two color pairs that I think are the least resolved are blue-green and green-black. I, I think, again, you can have successful decks. I think, if anything, we've seen the blue-green decks that are effective are more like a green deck that's playing blue for some card draw for to sort of, yeah, for Mole Drifter to kind of shore up, like, give you something to do in the late game to actually uh, close out the game. And then, potentially, at that point, it's more just like a five-color green deck that's splashing a couple other things. Black green, I don't know that we've seen that many decks drafted it at all from it, which is I can't really fine. think of one. And the thing that I think is worth mentioning uh, about this is that it's very easy to look at that and say, well, this is a huge problem with the cube. There's like this mistake here. But it's not like people were out there drafting green black decks and saying, oh, you know, I failed. Like <laughs> the cube wasn't here to support me and this archetype is incomplete. People just don't draft it. And it's like, OK, that's fine. And I think there's still a lot of diversity in the way that you can build other color pairs that it's not like there's this huge limitation. Yeah. 
I think it's totally fine to have a color pair people aren't playing. Who cares? If anything, you could see it as some potential design space, right? If you sure. want to add more stuff, that is some space you could do it. Because you could look at the, you know, the green, black, gold cards or any cards you might include in those color pairs that are kind of meant for whatever strategy it's supposed to be playing and say that, well, if these cards aren't seeing play, then those are slots that I could be using in some other way. And that could be to make a different kind of green-black strategy, or it could be to do something totally different for those two colors, and maybe you just cut your green-black gold cards, and who cares? I don't really like this color pair. This is not a color pair I expect people to play in this cube in isolation. Either of the solutions is fine, and also you can just find it, just leave it. You know, it's, it's not a problem. Yeah. It's just uh, maybe a potential opportunity, if anything. I and mean, we can't cut all the black-green cards because we can't cut Slimefoot, right? I think a good goal would be to make Slimefoot a high pick in this cube. It's... It used to be worse. It was actually so bad when I first built the cube that I cut it. And then after cutting some of the other big power outliers, I ended up adding it back. And I've actually played it a couple times. So we said that we've never seen a black-green deck. That's not totally true. I've definitely played some Slimefoot decks. But they but are it like just a three about... three or four-color deck that happened to have Slimefoot? I slime think a little bit, yeah. Which is, you know, just I think maybe something that's been tricky. Green has always been the most difficult color in this cube because I haven't really been trying to promote, like, a ramp strategy. So, if anything, green is kind of like the mana-fixing color, but not so much mana ramp. Yeah, I think, honestly, and you say it's a problem. The problem is just that people did not know what to do with it, right? Right. It's yeah. not that you were lacking a sense of what to do with green. You had a pretty clear sense of what you wanted to do with green from the beginning. It's that people were like, why do I want... Pell Collector in a deck or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And it's because they were expecting green to be ramp because it is in so many environments. Yeah. So, I mean, I wonder a little bit with green, black, if it's similar to the green, white and green, red color pairs, which are, you know, have a more clear identity of being proactive. Maybe green does have this potential deck that's much more about, you know, combining the removal from black and the sort of more attrition based cards or, you know, ways to, to beat that attrition game from green with stuff like Slimefoot. But it's just not there in a package that's appealing enough that players are actually combining those tools together. I think it's entirely possible there's a successful deck there. People just don't know how to get into drafting. We'd be remiss not to mention that I think green-black is a color pair that a lot of people have struggled with in cube over the years, especially at higher power levels, because if you just combine green threats and black removal, you get like a control deck that can't ever beat a control deck with blue in it pretty much because you don't have the same level of card quality and uh or card selection rather and card advantage and so you end up playing like a weird you know kind of rock style mid-range deck that's not fast enough to beat the control decks maybe it has a middle game plan that can beat an aggro deck but otherwise it's kind of just not well positioned against the rest of the field so that's the thing people i have definitely i think struggled with over the years is just that those colors combine in a way that uh you know you get their two natural strengths don't necessarily make for a game plan, I guess is what I mean. Whereas when you combine other colors, their natural strengths oftentimes have kind of a cohesive plan, right? You combine white and red strengths, you're going to be playing an aggressive deck. Right. You combine blue and black strengths, you're going to be playing a controlling deck because you want the removal and you want the ability to draw cards and have card selection to find what you need when you, when you need it. Combine black and green and you're like, I have a good stuff deck that has good cards from both black and green, threats and removal. It's, it's basically like a, a plussed up limited deck. Yeah. And so... It's not going to have any of the synergies, or at least uh, without you intentionally baking it in, it's not going to have the inherent synergies that, you know, blue-red just kind of ends up being a tempo-y spellslinger deck, right? We see it in every single core set since the beginning of time, right? That's so often what that color pair does, because that's kind of what the color pair promotes. What does black-green promote? It promotes, like, a good stuff mid-range strategy, which can oftentimes have a much lower ceiling, I think, than a more synergistic plan. Yeah, I mean, I think a plussed-up limited deck is a good way to think about it, because... I think this is also an experience for lots of people when they play cube for the first time. It was certainly the first, my first experience playing cube was, oh, I'm just going to take, you know, big threats and removal. That's what I know is good in magic because I was coming from the context of playing a lot of limited and did horribly in the draft. And it was really funny to then like a week later, listen to LSV on limited resources, talk about this is what happens the first time you draft cube is you're going to draft, you draft green planeswalkers and doom blades. And you're like, I can't lose. And you, Except you, you can. can't win. And it's, it's such a weird experience that is somewhat universal. But I think in this cube, you actually can do that a little bit of just you know draft the the yeah I, don't, I think removal. it's kind of viable i think what it lacks is like an identity that people are like ah exactly, i know yeah. what i'm doing whereas your other colors do have that identity yeah i mean honestly i could see doing more stuff with just you know repeated value engines with things like waker of the wilds a card that doesn't get played that much squirrel nest which also doesn't get played that much just ways to actually grind out a long game and combine that with the efficient removal i would love to see more payoffs for playing a card like a winding constrictor which 
I, I, I know why Winding Constrictor is in. I can put myself in your head. I know why Winding okay. Constrictor is in there. Get in my it's head. a two mana two three. It's fine. The floor is fine, and you can have this upside of interacting with counters where like it makes other cards slightly better, but you do not want there to be like a plus one plus one counter deck that's in the entire environment. Which I yeah, think I mean, it just should tilt you a little bit to that direction where it's like, oh, okay, we have a couple Hydras here. We have a couple combat tricks that use counters. There are ways to make this card better, but it's not just, you know, the signpost for this is all about what these this color pair is about. Which I think is similar to your rationale behind something like Fiery Temper, where Fiery Temper is the madness lightning bolt that you can cast for one red red. I think your logic is probably that one red red deal three to anything is very good here. And it it's is. Fine. But the relative paucity of discard outlets and also of ways to put counters on things i think does lead to a little bit of uh like disappointment in those cards right where even though they're totally playable as on their baseline right like a two mana two three is just fine in this environment i've seen it with soul diviner i've seen it with sylvan advocate that stat line is just good so if you can cast winding constrictor you just should but the fact that there's so much unrealized potential i think leads it to be underrated or just kind of a, a bummer compared to what it could potentially be and i wonder if you couldn't just inject five or ten percent more support for those kinds of cards and still not go all the way to the point of like your black green deck is just counters and that's all it cares about and it's like on rails i think you could go a little further to support that in a way that maybe would actually motivate players to like see the payoffs right yeah. see see that there is a deck there that or there is a way to get this fringe benefit off these cards to make them first pickable, right? To make Winding Constrictor a card, but you take it and say, like, I'm going to make this work, and that's going to be one of the things that's going to pull me into this deck. Add more counters. Hmm, interesting. What? There are a lot of counters here already. There's 64 cards that reference plus one, plus one counters, which is like 15% of the cube. How many in green and black? Uh, a bunch in green, not as many in black. And the ones that are in black are all a little bit more narrow. You know, this is kind of a zombie payoff, or this is uh, part of this artifact sacrifice thing, which... I mean, like we said, maybe that deck is there. Maybe that card is good, and people just don't know and haven't figured out how to draft it yet. Which, honestly, is is fine. You know, it's, it's funny there are things that just kind of can fly under the radar and not feel like a problem and not be a problem. You know, it's not like people are like... I drafted this card and it was a huge trap and I feel like my whole, I try and direct my draft because of this, that that's not happening. So yeah, I don't know that there is necessarily a problem, but like you're saying, there could be just more space where we could really optimize for having more diversity of different decks and experiences. There's also a question of the quality of threats. And I know there are a lot of good green cards that care about plus one, plus one counters that are high picks in this cube. But when it comes to like the discard outlets, I do have a small, I mean, as, as big of a madness theme as you can possibly have in this cube. I have both madness cards in, in red mm -hmm. in my uh, in my blue red deck. And the discard outlets largely are like not cards I want to be playing on power level. And so the chance of combining Thrill of Possibility with my Fiery Temper, that upside is just not worth it to me to put Thrill of Possibility in my deck, you know? I do love Thrill of Possibility, though. I So we did a draft of this Card's last fine. week, and I struggled in the draft. Like I, I wouldn't say I train wrecked, but I was... You thought you did. ...stretching for playables. I had, you know, exactly the number of playables. And literally zero dual lands. And literally, I, yeah, it was, it was not my best draft. But what was funny is, like, when I say I was stretching for playables, I was playing, like, a main deck, a disenchant, a Thrill of Possibility, and the Claim the Firstborn without having any synergy with it, just because I needed cards. Claim's and just a good card. I don't care what people say. All three of those cards were just fine. Like, I was just really happy to pitch my fifth land all the time. I was happy to claim the Firstborn things and find ways to close out games or use my opponent's creatures that could sacrifice themselves. So, I do but, kind but of like... But fine is not what pulls people into... Like, you don't take Thrill of Possibility because it's fine. You take it because you want to do something cool with it right sure i don't know i feel like if there was uh i think i took frantic search which i think is a it's kind of a broken discard outlet right mm -hmm. like frantic search is messed up if there's something in between maybe the thrill of possibility and the frantic searches and i'm not sure what's in that space i haven't looked at it but that that's the other thing i'm saying about the plus one plus one counters right if i take windy constrictor but then the next three most powerful green black cards i see are all something i care about something totally different and it's like well i could take this c minus that is good with winding constrictor or this card that's an a minus or a b plus i'm just gonna take the a minus and b plus and then yeah turning like that c minus into a c or a c plus just isn't enough to actually make their make interesting decision space it's like still not close right the other thing I did a little bit, so I also added some of the cards that I've sort of have been in my backlog from recent sets, cards that really stand out to me as regular cube cards, things like Scrapwork Mutt, Rabbit Battery, Cut Down, Recruitment Officer. These are kind of things that have sort of been lingering. 
I also added just a couple more blue cards just because, you know, I don't try and keep the counts of cards exactly even between different colors, but I just kind of eyeball it. I'm like, that column's a little short. Let's add a couple more over there. Yeah, I use it as a tiebreaker, basically. If yeah. I'm like, well, I'm going to cut one of these cards, and I'll look at the counts and be like, oh, I'm actually kind of heavy on red cards right now or whatever. So I threw in Quicken, which was also a recommendation of yours, and Portent and Remand just to shore up the blue section a little bit. And I think those have all played out fine. Like, I love all You can always cards. just have more cantrips. There is a little bit of, there's some spells payoff, so... Those cards are always going to do stuff and, and be relevant. Hermand is one of my favorite magic cards ever, maybe. So simple, so cool, has so many weird edge case applications. It's great. Yeah. It's I, like, it's I like, was kind of hoping like, to pick it up for my rotisserie draft just so I could get multiple artifact cast triggers. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the similarity between Remand and like Dress Down, they're very similar in their play patterns. Mm-hmm. It's just that Dress Down is like a pile of complicated rules text that's dumb and Remand is beautifully clean. Like the fact that Dress Down has to be an enchantment that self sacrifices and blah, 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 compared to Remand's like, you know, two and a half lines of rules text, which is beautiful. But they play very similarly in that they have really cool, wide arrays of applications with a very good floor that I just, I love. And I think it scales well with the environment. It's never going to be totally broken, but it's always going to have applications. So that's kind of where I'm at with regular cube. I feel like there are there's still a lot of space where this could continue to be tuned and, and focus more on these particular areas that we've been talking about. But overall, I think that it feels kind of settled and I kind of want to just focus my cube energy on trying something a little bit different and maybe working on my next cube. Fair. You finished cube. Good job. Finished cube. It's done. I'll let you know when I get there. I'm jealous. <laughs> I had a couple little updates here for the Degenerate Micro Cube. Maybe I'll just summarize by saying that I added sideboard-only cards into that cube, like stuff that you just probably will never main deck because it's literally unplayable in some circumstances, like your Veil of Summers and, you know, your Blue Elemental Blast and stuff like that. But, uh, but those have been fun. I think that it leans into what that environment is already kind of about, which sideboarding is already a huge deal there because you can totally transform your deck with a few swaps. And so... I made the packs bigger to accommodate them. I didn't cut existing cards. I just said, let's draft more and include more sideboard cards. And that's been fun. Less, less micro all the time. It's The micro refers <laughs> to the deck size. We've been over this so many times. And it should be a degenerate micro deck cube. Oh, that really rolls off the tongue. It does, yeah. The other card that I added semi-recently that was not related to like recent set editions was uh, I, I added Karn the Great Creator, which is a card I've always wanted to be good there because there are a ton of matchup specific artifacts and like you know little trinkety is there a word for like chalice of the void and thorn of amethyst i guess spheres is what people call them like little artifacts that are like hate pieces against specific strategies that means you can have a very good karn sideboard and like any kind of deck it's also a win condition in a late game because you just keep getting back whatever artifacts got exiled and then make them into creatures the thing that was a problem for a while with that card is that People expected to want to play it in like a shops deck, but you can't cast it with shops. And so it's got this weird tension of like, it's not an artifact, can't play with my art with my Mishra's Workshop, but it wants to be in that sort of similar deck. And I think people have gotten over that and realized that it's actually kind of a different card that makes a little bit of its own deck that can maybe just have a little bit of ramp in instead of a Mishra's Workshop. Or you can play it along Mishra's Workshop. You just got other man in there to cast it. And uh, it's been a really cool addition that games do revolve around it a lot because shutting off all of your opponent's artifacts activated abilities also shuts off all of their sideboard pieces that they brought in to try and make stuff irrelevant they really should have committed and just printed an artifact planeswalker i'm a little bit disappointed. I, yeah why not I why mean, who not cares? who like, cares like he is a robot he Come is on, an artifact who should, cares is this not fit on the type line is <laughs> there some rules problem possible. with it i guess they didn't want you to be able to shatter someone's planeswalker but who cares there's there's probably something broken with it where i mean yeah with misha's workshop but also stuff that can tutor artifacts maybe there were specific interactions they didn't want I feel like they just didn't want to turn every single destroy target artifact into destroy this planeswalker, but I mission another frame. I think it's cool. Yeah, those are updates to our cubes. A uh, little potpourri episode for you. We are going to end on a listener submitted pack one pick one. This week's pack comes to us from listener Jared. It is his cube, the Bird Box, and it's a popper cube. One of the special rules modifications here is that all the basics are snow basics, and it's named after his cat Bird. We've actually done a pick from uh, this other cube named after his dog Mozart before. So, you know, the algorithm seems to like Jared. (laughs) And the algorithm, I should state, is designed to not favor people if they've submitted multiple cubes. It balances for that. So, uh, yeah, I guess it just (laughs) just likes these cubes. Sometimes you roll snake eyes or double sixes, I guess. I don't want to imply that Jared is a bad roll. (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to read the pack and Anthony's going to tell us what he's looking at. The cards are Snowhorn Rider, Body Dropper. Coiling Oracle, Silver Flame Squire, Makeshift Munitions, Compulsive Research, Jackal Pup, 
Maria's Outrider, Quambodge Witches, Burn Bright, Avon Liberator, Dogged Pursuit, Farseek, Manowar, and Kasali Pride Mage. Really strong finish on that pack. Manowar and Kasali Pride Mage are just two of my all-time favorite cards. Can I just take both of those? Are you going to take one of them? I don't know. Um, I'm tempted to take the Pride Mage, but starting a gold card here seems risky. I think all the best cards are gold cards, to me at least. Like the safe pickups are like you could take a Far Seeker Compulsive Research and be like, sure, I'll play this no matter what color I'm in, but neither is particularly interesting or like a power outlier. I think the power outliers are Pride Mage and Body Dropper, honestly. Body Dropper is also a pretty cool card. Sure, you can talk me into it. I'll take a Pride Mage. All right, I'll take a Body Dropper then, and we'll see, uh, we'll see which deck is better supported, the Sacrifice deck or the... Exalted deck? Question no, mark. That's the thing is, is Pride Mage is yeah, just great. Pride Mage it's just, is just generically good. It's just great. Exalted is such a cool mechanic. I yeah. really like it. Yeah, Body Dropper is to the red and a black for a two-two Devil Warrior. When you sacrifice another creature, put a plus one plus one counter on it, and you can pay a black and a red and sacrifice another creature to give it menace until end of turn. I think the triggered ability here is the more relevant thing. Just a two-two for two that grows as you sacrifice stuff seems really good. Honestly, it could be a regular cube card as far as I'm concerned. So we don't need to boost that archetype. Yeah, that's the thing is I definitely like this card and I looked at it. But yeah, I mean, part of it is is context and I don't necessarily want uh, to add even more support to Red Black Sacrifice. Yeah. Pride Mage. I love it. I don't know if it's the right pick, but uh, I'm feeling okay about my deck so far. I get makeshift munitions and weaponize the monsters confused in my head sometimes, and I'm always disappointed at how much worse makeshift munitions seems. I get that you're supposed to like sacrifice treasure tokens mm-hmm. and like dinky yeah. artifacts. And that's what's supposed to make it comparable, but... Boy, is it worse than Weaponize the Monsters. That's an uncommon, so I couldn't even see playing this cube anyway. All right, Jared, we've covered both of your pets now on uh, our pack one pick one, so got to get more pets, I guess. More pets and more cubes. (laughs) We've also been working on a bunch of other little stuff in the background. Uh, We've updated the commander map, uh, so if you have a commander deck hosted on one of the sites that EDH rec ingests, you can now actually just paste in a link to your cube and actually find your cube on the map, which is you pretty exciting. You keep saying your cube instead of your deck. Yeah. I do it all the time, too. It's deck. It's okay. They just listened to a whole episode about cube. They know that yeah. my tendency cube, is... Cube, deck, interchangeable. Same, we all know this. Same thing. A commander deck is just a little cube that you just draw from. Uh, so check that out. I've also been expanding uh, the still untitled list formatter, which is, we'll link it in the show notes, it's linked on the resources page. Uh, You can now, if you put in a list of cards or search for a list of cards on Scryfall, download a set of images from Scryfall uh, of your choice if you want the art crops or the large or small images or whatever. So just working hard to try and make a thing that makes other people do less repetitive computer work with magic. The dream. The The dream dream of every computer engineer is to make a thing that saves people repetitive work, which is unfortunately so often the reality of, of software we build but it's true yeah it's a it's a great little way to just manage lists of magic cards so if you have any reason I and mean, it's hard to market it for lack of a better word because what do you do with it well whatever you could possibly want to do with a list of magic cards but you know if you are trying to uh, take a list of cards and get all of their sets for some reason or you need to that's a good example. <laughs> ah, so hard to think of examples, but I, I do use it myself sometimes, and uh, we have other people that have definitely been big fans of it. So, yeah, you should check it out if you uh, ever need to transform magic data. Yeah, that's the thing is you don't need to go look at it now and use it because you probably you don't have, have to use it. Just, just know. know if you're ever like, I'm doing this repeatedly. I keep like looking up the color identity for this card and pasting into the spreadsheet. Maybe this can help you. Yeah. Maybe one of the best use cases for our audience, honestly, is like if you do want to use like graphing tools in Google Sheets or Excel you can go pull a spreadsheet with whatever data you want of the cards in your cube, which I guess you can probably pull most of that stuff from the CSV you can download from Cube Cobra, but this is configurable, so you can get rid of uh, things you don't care about and make sure you add everything you do care about. Anything that's in Scryfall's data, basically. Yeah, I mean, I use a lot for, like, we just did this rotisserie draft and just getting the list of the cube with all the appropriate columns so that I can have the colors and stuff in that uh, template for the rotisserie draft. That's super useful, uh, just grabbing metadata for card pages and stuff like that. I also just built another little tool in my my quest to uh, cut down on people doing repetitive work. I uh, built a little tool to build set cubes. So right, if set you're cube builder. This is a great one. In starting a set cube, you want to have a set cube as a starting point to import into Cube Cobra to build it. You can choose the set you want and the exact number of duplicates for each rarity, uh, and it'll build you a CSV that's exactly formatted to import into Cube Cobra, so you can uh, create that, import it to Cube Cobra, and use that as a starting point for your cube. 
Yeah, that's a great tool. That's a great little like it's kind of like the list formatter with a little bit of extra stuff on top to yeah, let you, can, you, you know, do multiple. You can do, do it in like six steps with a list formatter. <laughs> you can do it in one step with this, which, yeah. is, which is better, I guess. Yeah, another great <laughs> thing that to understand. You, you listener probably don't need this right now, but you should know it exists. Just if know you ever go exists. to make a set cube, just know you can do this without having to tediously... I mean, how do people do it now? I never even occurred to me how what it would be like to make a set cube. Do you just have to like... It sounds tedious as heck. Like, yeah, I mean, I mentioned this to Aaron, a buddy in our local group who just recently made a set cube, and he was like, oh, man, I wish I had that three weeks ago. <laughs> you would have saved know? me two nights yeah. of my life. Exactly. I mean, the way I would have done it before is going to Scryfall, going to the table view, copy and paste into a spreadsheet, and right. grab... It's a, it was a little bit tedious. A lot. But these are the kinds of things that I end up using the list formatter for a bunch. Is you can do a lot of these things that might take a couple clicks, but a lot less than if you have to do stuff manually. Might take a couple clicks, or you're like futzing around with the inspector and yeah. in scryfall or you know stripping Ooh, yeah. out extra stuff that it copy you didn't want to copy anyway cool resources over at luckypaper.co check them out and that's it for this episode thanks for tuning in all of our music is produced by dj james nasty all the magic cards are produced by wizards of the coast this show is produced by anthony and i thinking really hard about magic cards and then speaking into microphones about it we get to go to philly now anthony this is coming out after our philadelphia trip but i'm excited for it i'm really excited as well it's going to be a ton of fun we're going to play a lot of cube I'm a little nervous for this panel, but... I only found out this week that this event is twice as big as Magic Vegas was, so that's do surprising. Great. That's You'll shocking. Do great. I'm sure I'll do fine. You're going to do great, too, but I have to make sure that I do great because I'm hosting it. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure on you there. If you're not doing great, I'll just make everyone else talk. It'll be fine. It's, it's going to be great. 